at 540. Yes. Lucia Angel? Yeah. Niha Banger? Here. B. Frank Walker? Here. Richard Harvey Jr.? Present. Loretta Mellon? Here. Eric Murphy? Mark Smith? Derek So? Ali Yesin? We have a quorum? Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so first on our agenda, uh, uh, for my chair report, um, I just want to remind folks that we are nearing the end of the year. Um, we only have a couple of meetings left after this month. Um, and with that comes the election process for um, our president and, or chair, I guess, chair and vice chair uh, for the CAB. Um, so I believe next month we will have our nomination, uh, our nomination. Um, so just something to keep in mind, think about. And um, next month when we meet again, if you would like to nominate someone, um, we can do that. Um, if you, I think we can nominate ourselves if that's something you're interested in. Uh, and maybe have a word or two to share about, you know, why you're interested in in, um, in uh, being a, a candidate for next year's um, chair or vice chair. Um, so, yeah, just want to make sure that some people find and you're thinking about that. Mm -hmm. okay. Lucia, before you Alexander, before we go forward, yeah. Uh, I was having connectivity issues. Do you mind going over? Uh, how many board members do we have? Do we have enough for a quorum? Mm -hmm. I believe so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We have members present on the nine member quorum, so that's more than 50%. Who do we have, Heather? We have six presents. We okay. have, you want me to tell you who we have? Yeah, that'll be great so that I can just write them down. We have Lucia, Neha, B. Richard, Loretta, um, and Ali. No, Ali is, is. Ali is here. Got it. Okay, so that's probably the name that I missed. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Let's proceed. Thank you. Okay. Um. Okay. So we will. Uh, oh. So we'll move on to the next one, which is the approval of our meeting next month. So are there, unless there are any approval report, including uh, the meeting minutes for the um, I move to approve the meetings for the previous meeting. Yeah. I second. NKB and Let's hear your mic is cutting in and out. Sometimes I'm having bit of hearing. Okay. Let's try to get better. Okay. 
So thank you. Are we any uh, any do we say any objections? So can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Increase the volume a little bit. So we're, uh, we approved uh, the meetings for September 8th. Correct. Thank you. Um, so we'll get started on our next uh, discussion report item. Um, we have our medical dire um, director report from Damon. Thanks so much. Um, today I'm just going to keep it brief because we have a bunch of other uh, agenda items and guests here. Um, so I'm going to do the usual update on the um, coronavirus pandemic among people experiencing homelessness, just to keep us all oriented since that's really fast moving and, and um, it's, it's important to keep track of that for us. And then I'm going to hand it over to um, Paula Bavaria, who is our chief ambulatory officer, who I also report to. So I report to you all and I report to um, Paula within the institution at Alameda Health System and we're really glad to have her. Um, along with Karen Wise, our Ambulatory Director of Behavioral Health here um, for the next agenda item. But I just wanted to be able to give you all, uh, or have Paula give you all a brief overview of what's happened with the strike um, so that you, know, you can um, have a chance to ask questions as well if, uh, if, if you're interested there. And she's definitely much more involved um, than I've been in, in managing that. Um, so, Brenda, you can go to the next slide. Uh, a lot of title slides here. You can go to the next one. <laughs> So I think this is a format that you are, are used to seeing. Um, really, I think the headline is that the cases and outbreaks are really continuing at a similar rate, which is um, no higher than the rate in the general population, at least as far as we can tell from the data. We are undercounting probably across people experiencing homelessness, but also undercounting in the general population to some extent as well. Um, as of the end of September, when um, I had to turn the, the numbers in, there were 157 cases total. Um, it's mostly pretty balanced between sheltered and unsheltered folks, um, a little bit a little bit more on the unsheltered side. There have been 55 outbreak responses overall. So an outbreak is defined as a single case, either in an encampment or in a shelter, um, which triggers a response that is uh, basically designed to prevent transmission in that area and figure out, uh, if we can, how the transmission occurred. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the usual number of a few sites open with active responses happening. So two current responses as of the end of September at encampments, three current responses at shelters. There haven't really been any since the last meeting sort of big airlift operations from any of the shelter sites where we moved a bunch of people from, um, you know, from a shelter into, um, into a hotel. Um, I think the largest outbreak of those was in, uh, back in August. So it's been relatively kind of steady as she goes in terms of the transmission and, and outbreaks and people experiencing homelessness. Next slide. Um, the safer ground occupancy is leveling off at about a thousand rooms. There's no more hotel development going on um, for this particular population of patients. 
these are safer ground is again for people who are not necessarily infected um, or suspected to have infection, but who are at high risk of really bad complications if they were to be infected. Um, and so um, I don't have the exact numbers on the number of people, but there are about a thousand households in, um, in safer ground uh, sites around the county at this point in time. And um, effectively, the whole push to move in, you know, from referral partners like Alameda Health System, other partners around the community has really slowed down. And now we're starting to accumulate um, large wait lists. So I think the, the, there is a little bit of uh, space still to fill up in Livermore. And outside of that, all of the Oakland and North County sites um, have been full now for a couple weeks. And we still have some small amount of turnover. But I think what we can see now is our wait list growing much faster than the vacancy rate is growing. Um, and this is a really common trend, I think, in, in the world of, um, you know, homeless services. Um, you tend to have, like, sort of lease-up events. So, like, a big opening, you create a big wait list, and then that wait list sort of becomes dead. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a real mechanism for driving frustration and inequity inside of the system. Um, so you end up with these, like, really exciting, um, you know, opportunities. Um, in this case, that came out of a pandemic, which is not so exciting, but, you know, being able to move in a thousand households in a few months is pretty amazing. But often then on the back end of that, we're left with the situation we're in now, um, where we have thousands more people who are eligible for these uh, hotel rooms and, and really no place to send them. Um, next slide. Um, you can see the Operation Comfort. This, this is isolation and quarantine housing for people who are infected or exposed. Um, we have about 200 units available, um, and you can see those big humps of times where a bunch of people moved in, usually to clear out a shelter where there was an outbreak, and we wanted to make sure that we could do everything we could to stop transmission in that outbreak setting. Um, but there haven't been many of those since uh, that last spike in, in August, and really the occupancy stayed pretty low. Um, so on the next slide, you can see um, there's a lot of evolution still happening uh, in the in in the sort of planning process for housing. So the county's planning to purchase the Comfort Inn actually now um, and convert 105 units from COVID housing, so the housing that was on that last slide for isolation and quarantine, to um, safer ground type type housing that's going to eventually become permanent supportive housing. So really have even more enriched services than what exists at the safer ground site right now and is connected to the long-term continuum of care and, and the organizations that provide permanent supportive housing. So um, that will move from a lease property to a, a property that the county owns and, and is going um, to maintain in the long term, which is really exciting. Um, I think something that's concerning is seeing stories about other counties that are closing down their COVID-related housing um, and primarily related to pending FEMA funding cuts. Um, these funding cuts, you know, our facilities are in large part funded by FEMA here in Alameda County. Um, the, um, it's not, you know, not necessarily a cut, but a failure to extend the funding that was provided uh, earlier through FEMA. And unless we see congressional action soon, I think um, those cuts are going to land in Alameda County, too, and it's not clear what's going to happen. Um, we've been more successful than other counties in terms of uh, both developing capacity you know, per capita and filling up that capacity per capita. So that success then sets us up for more of a you know, rebound um, if we're not able to actually 
uh, continue, you know, receiving the support that, that we received, uh, um, you know, earlier in the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, there are about a thousand households now um, in COVID-related housing, and I think it, it, it's, it would be really hard for me to, it is really hard for me to, you know, when we see patients in those places say, what happens next? Uh, I think we're, we're thinking to good results with moving folks in slowly into other um, permanent housing slots, um, but that's a really slow process, and I think um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm concerned that we're going to end up not having um, even these interim housing slots for, for folks within the next few months if we're not able to um, to figure out where the funding is going to come from. So I think that ends the overview. Um, I'm happy to take any questions on COVID, and then I can hand it over to uh, to Paulo to give a strike update. between the wait list and the available housing? Uh, in our system, I think we're over 50 patients on the wait list. We referred uh, up to the point in time where we checked, which was I think a couple weeks ago, 80 total. We've placed about 40. Um, many, many more folks are patients of Alameda Health System who someone else referred, right? So shelters can refer into the system. Probably about, I would, I would guesstimate, we have good data on the Medi-Cal population, but not on the rest of the population that a plurality of patients of about 30% are have medical homes with Alameda Health System. Um, okay. So there's, you know, there's several hundred in the, in the Safer Ground Housing who are, who are Alameda Health System assigned patients. Um, and we've made 30 referrals ourselves and accumulated a wait list probably now of about 50 that's, that's grow, that continues to grow you know, on a weekly basis. And, and how precarious is the situation with the 1,000 households and the COVID-related housing? Uh, what do you mean by precarious? With the future of approximately 1,000 households and COVID-related um, housing is uncertain. I was wondering if you elaborate on that a little bit. I think that it's, it's just a summary of the prior two bullets. There's been okay. 105 units that have been purchased. Um, so those 105 units are guaranteed. They're purchased moving forward. There's, you know, there's, um, if you the building, you know, it's, there's going to be tremendous incentive, even with budget cuts, to operate that building for people experiencing homelessness. So it's almost guaranteed that those 105 units will at least be preserved. Um, beyond those, you know, I don't know the specific budget numbers. I don't know that they're available, but we do know a, a large portion of the funding for the overall effort is FEMA, and we don't, you know, we don't have any sense that, you know, of what's going to happen with the FEMA funding um, because of, you know, the negotiations that are happening at the federal level right now. So, and I don't have any more information from the state or the county as to, like, what other sources of funds would be used, where would those come from, et cetera. Um, and, and we don't, we haven't, you know, been, been involved in any planning processes to date around what, what would we do for the families. So I really don't have anything, you know, more, any more detail to add other than to say, I can see that there's a problem, but it's it's you know hard to know how that's going to be how that's going to be reconciled over time. Okay, thank you. I have a question. I have a question. This is Eric. Um, uh, I was wondering. I'm glad you just mentioned what you just said. I was wondering um, since 
things uncertain with FEMA. Uh, are you uh, are you got, are we through the county able to receive donations or contributions from um, people of the public or like parcel uh, tax? I know, like with other, say for example, like commissions, they have. Um, uh, partnership with the uh, parcel tax where they send out an envelope for people to uh, make an extra contribution in, in addition to their parcel tax that will go towards a certain um, uh, fund. And with November coming up, parcel tax and stuff is pretty close. And it's that Apostle Avenue to look into to receive additional funding to create more um, uh, housing or it you know, the where public can donate it sounds plausible to me um, I think uh, I don't know the I don't know the particular plans of the county which you know is, is um, contracting for a lot of the services and really taking responsibility to lead the development of, of this project in partnership with lots and lots and lots of agencies I'm sure among their plans is to figure out you know how to how to bring many different sources of money to bear, including absolutely donations. Um, so as I find out more about that, I will definitely make sure that you all, um, you know, that I share that with you all. I'm sorry, uh, sorry to bear you, but my my Zoom just dropped and I missed that last part. Oh, I was saying I'm sure I'm sure that that they're considering donations. Uh, it's possible they're considering leveraging, you know, property tax and, you know, bonds and other sources of funding. And as soon as I know more about what the plans are, um, I, I'm absolutely happy to share those with you all. Hey, uh, I'm just sure that because, and I'll just say where I got it for, uh, actually, I just turned out of being on the Alameda County Arts Commission, and that was a method that was used where... I lost you, Eric. I don't know if everyone... Yeah, sorry. The, the, it will still keep dropping. Sorry. But anyway, that's, uh, if it's like a donation through the parcel, that's a possible avenue. That'd be great to get more information from you on, on how the Arts Commission um, organized that. And just, oh, sorry. I'm interrupting you. Oh, no, no. You're fine. Uh, um, yeah, that, that sounds good. I'd be happy to um, connect or share because... I'll be happy to do add more, more money to my parcel for that for this call. Yeah, we'll we'll reach out to you and find out more about the mechanism they're using, and and then look out for that in terms of what whatever the process the county uh, process is. But I think that's that's something I'm really interested in us okay. doing. You know, as a group in general, is coordinating with other commissions, other boards that are you know advancing the interests of health and well-being for the community. I think. We often lose the narrative of the big picture of what's happening in health and wellness in our community, and so I think that that type of suggestion, Eric, is the kind of thing that I want us to, you know, be building on over time to figure out how we can partner with, you know, other commissions that are doing those things and come up with creative ideas to, you know, to fund a thriving community, um, which absolutely includes you know, not going back on the amazing success we've been able to achieve in, in housing a thousand households in the last uh, in the last six months or so. Sounds good.
and I think I can turn it over to you, Paula, for the strike update. Great. Um, so first and foremost, just thank you all so much for having me. I apologize it's taken so long to get here. So for those of you whom I haven't met, I'm Paula Babria. I'm the CAO for Ambulatory Services. I oversee all of our clinics across the system. I'm also a primary care provider um, at K6 Wellness, and it's great to see some familiar faces like Loretta here on this call. Um, and I apologize because I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and you're going to hear lots of children noises in the background as I do double duty this evening. Um, so just in terms of the strike updates, you know, we obviously thankfully got the 10-day notification from SDIU. So in the ambulatory space, SDIU represents pretty much everyone who's not a physician or a manager. So all of our nurses, all of our pharmacists, midwives, NPs, PAs, medical assistants, registration staff, um, interpreters, you know, everyone that we essentially rely on to provide great patient care. Um, so with the advance notice, and thankfully due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we have had a lot of practice since March in doing telehealth. Our main strategy was to try to convert as much of our care to telehealth as possible because, you know, the providers, the physicians were working at least, and it allowed us to push some of the other functions to different days. Um, so we were able to accomplish that. And let me actually... Um, I'm just going to pull up one stat so I can give you an exact number of what we were able to do today because um, we just reviewed this with some of our leaders today. Sorry, I should have had this teed up. Um, that we had the strike, you know, despite essentially having no support staff other than the few that chose to cross the picket line, our call center, which did have a great turnout of staff, um, served 1,414 patients from Wednesday through Saturday or, or Wednesday through Friday last week. We saw 2,072 patients at Highland Wellness, mostly through telehealth, but we were able to squeeze in urgent patients whose needs couldn't be met by telehealth. 357 patients at East Mount Wanas, 286 patients at Hayward, and 223 patients at Newark. Um, and, you know, for every single one of those interactions, we just got amazing feedback from our leaders and our providers of just patient stories and needs that, you know, really could not have been delayed until Monday. Um, so I think from the ambulatory perspective, all of our sites were prepared. We were able to maintain patient access and provide patient care despite the strike. And then at least as of the report out today, the re-entry of all of our regular staff um, post-strike starting Monday has gone really smoothly. But I'm happy to answer more specific questions if there are any. Um, hi, uh, can you hear me? Yep. Uh, this is Mark. Um, question, uh, what actually was the focus of the strike and um, the only reason why I ask is uh, if it's not um, if it's not permanently resolved, is, is this something that we can look forward to in the future that might occur uh, that might interrupt um, or might have an impact on services? I mean, that's a great question. You know, I, I know I've partnered with SEIU, our main labor union, on numerous projects, and I know that they don't take the strike lightly. No one wants to do this to our patients. Um, and certainly for the employees who did strike, there's an economic impact to them too and losing wages for those days. So we all hope, I think, on both sides that this does not happen again. 
um, the actual reasons behind the strike, there were a lot of issues um, related to the bargaining and points of contention. I know Dalvecchio Finley, our CEO, did give a public statement at the Board of Supervisors meeting that really clearly outlined in more granular detail what all those issues were. And that memo was shared with AHS staff and providers, but it is public. So I do wonder, you know, Damon, it may be useful to share that memo with this group um, because it's all readily accessible public information and will give you a lot more details than I would do justice trying to paraphrase right now. So I do know that they were, you know, AHS and the FDA are going to re-enter negotiations, hopefully with this mediator that they've agreed upon um, so that we hope uh, that this does not happen again. You can definitely share that memo. Other questions? Hello? Um, I think that that um, ends the questions for that section, and so then Lucia is going to um, move us on to the next part of the agenda. Okay. Okay. Um, so before we move on, I just wanted to acknowledge we had a couple members join us. We had, I believe Mark and Eric. Is there anyone else on the line? Okay. Thanks for joining us. And we are going to move forward to our next agenda item. Um, Excuse me, Lucia? Um, yes. This is Mark. I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, it, it seemed like you started to try to take a roll of, uh, of who was on the line. And I'm just wondering, do we, we do have a quorum? Yes, yes, yes. I, I was just acknowledging that you were able to join in. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Um, and so we'll move forward with our behavioral health integration. And maybe I can just uh, introduce it briefly again, and then I'll hand it over to um, Karen and Paula. So um, we present you all an annual budget for um, services and, you know, accompanied by a plan for how the services are going to be provided. And um, we do not have any changes to that plan um, to present to you from, you know, for, for next calendar year. Um, but I think um, the, some of the work that's being done in behavioral health right now will lead to um, changes in our service model that affect the homeless population at the wellness centers in two years from now. And so I wanted to um, invite Karen and Paula to come um, to be able to present some of uh, you know, the thinking and, um, and doing that's happening around um, behavioral health right now inside the wellness centers and across all of ambulatory services, outside, inclu including outside of our specific scope, so that we can just be more informed and prepared when it's time to um, to address these as a board, you know, coming up in, in future years. So I think today our hope for the conversation was really just for you all to hear what's happening um, and for you all to ask questions if you have any, and then um, really to express, you know, any, any ideas around uh, things you would love to see, things you want to be in, in, integrated into the planning process, you know, ideas that are important to you, um, questions that you have, et cetera, you know, that can inform the, the planning process that is absolutely underway for 
how behavioral health is going to evolve in our in our wellness centers. So that's the that's the overview, and I'll hand it over to uh, to Paula and Karen. Thanks, Damon. Maybe we can go to the next slide. Um, so you can skip the memo and maybe just go to the PowerPoint slides that I think come after this. Great. Um, so hopefully what we're going to go over, you know, this information has been presented previously to our QPSC committee of the board, which governs quality um, and has gotten extensive feedback from, you know, numerous parts of our system, from a quality lens, from a primary care referring provider lens, from the IOP substance use program themselves lens, from a financial lens. So this summary will hopefully help share with all of you where we're at today, and then I'll turn it over to Karen, who's going to talk about sort of where we're hoping to take this into the future state. Um, so for those of you who don't know, you know, previously all of our outpatient behavioral health clinics used to report up to behavioral health leadership that was also responsible for John George, that was Dr. Karen Tribble, um, and Dr. Karen Weiss has been the director of integrated behavioral health for some time due to a number of operational changes in December of 2019, so almost a year ago, we changed that structure. And so now all of the outpatient behavioral health clinics report up into ambulatory and are part of um, our department. And the big impetus was that really, you know, John George has a lot of acute issues going on and we in ambulatory are obviously much more used to taking care of outpatients, getting referrals, scheduling patients. And it was thought that having behavioral health and outpatient could really help us support these programs in a way that was hard to do for John George leadership who were stretched in numerous domains. So as soon as all these clinics moved over, you know, I personally went with Karen to meet all of the staff, the providers, many of the patients, and we started just getting a sense of, by doing a SWOT analysis, what's going on with these programs, what's working really well, what's on their wish list for things that people wish they could be doing more of to support our patients that maybe they're not resourced to do. Um, and so that led to the analysis that we're gonna go over today. So we can go to the next slide. Um, so I won't get into sort of the super minute detail, but I'm happy to answer questions on any of these programs. So in current state, we have a number of different programs that support patients experiencing substance use disorders. The Substance Use Disorder Clinic is based at Highland Hospital. Um, we have a county contract for these services, so it's very closely tied to county behavioral health as well. They serve about 125 patients a month. It's very patient accessible. There's no barriers based on insurance or care. They take drop-in patients, you know, really focused on a harm reduction, harm reduction approach. They have childcare. Um, a lot of the opportunities were it's a great program that no one knows about, and so we don't get nearly as many referrals as we could be. So we've been really focusing on that. Um, we have two, two different clinics, the Buprenorphine Induction Clinic and the Bridge Clinic, that are more medically focused, that serve patients with substance use disorders and really focus on medication-assisted treatment. Um, we actually, since these slides were made, had great news and updates that these clinics that were sort of in their silos, the Bridge Clinic really saw a lot of patients coming out of our emergency department. The buprenorphine induction clinic saw a lot of patients that were being referred from inside of our system and from the CHCN community clinics and primary care. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but they were really working in silos and have a lot of overlap. So as part of this restructuring work, those clinics as of yesterday, so it's hot off the presses, have co-located and are sort of merging and integrating into one so that all the providers and the staff can be in the same place, support each other, 
um, and really expand our access for patients to really have five days a week and hopefully in the future more um, of immediate access and care. And then through a number of capacity building grants, we've also trained up providers who are primary care providers at all four of our FQHC sites um, to become DEA X waivered and to provide more comprehensive care for patients with substance use disorders. You can go to the next slide. And I'm happy if you guys want to interrupt me along the way to ask questions. That's completely fine, too. Um, uh, I'd like to interrupt. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This, uh, this is Mark. Uh, one of my questions is um, uh, basically because uh, you're taking on some of these, these patients, um, my only question, I, one of my concerns would be John George being the facility that it is, is that in some cases uh, it might be important for that patient, uh, depending on assessment, might need a bed, and John George may be the best place. But given what you just told me and given the institution of these programs, does that mean that that's out of consideration going forward uh, uh, until further notice? Karen, do you, um, I think my short answer is no, but Karen, I wonder if you want to respond to that more from the behavioral health perspective. Yeah, so um, all the patients still have the same access to John George that they did before, and actually we are continuing to improve our relationship with um, uh, the staff there. Um, we have gotten a lot of, of more referrals from John George into our outpatient programs in the last few months. Um, so we really think we're on the right track in being able to better coordinate those services. So absolutely, if one of our patients in a substance abuse treatment outpatient or one of the outpatient um, uh, therapy programs needs John George, we would coordinate to get them to that level of care. Thank you. Great. So the other sort of two big buckets of programs that we have serve different populations of patients based off the severity of their behavioral health illness. Um, so in terms of mild to moderate uh, behavioral health issues, so these are patients who have you know mild depression, mild anxiety. Um, we have three different areas where these patients are served, and you know the. Top one is the outpatient therapy program. So these are all covered by Alameda Alliance or Anthem Blue Cross in terms of managed Medi-Cal insurance coverage. Alameda Alliance has contracted out their behavioral health coverage via Beacon. So if you hear Beacon, it's just a contracted entity through the health plan. Um, so we do offer individual and group therapy for both adult and pediatric patients, but the capacity is really, really small. And so at the Fairmont campus, at any given point in time, we can see 23 patients and at the Highland campus, at the time these slides were made, which I think was um, about six months ago now, we were seeing eight patients. Um, there were a lot of issues with just the EPIC build and the referral workflows. So again, you know, a small number of patients being served compared to what the need is. We also have an integrated behavioral health program where we have psychology students who are supporting patients at the wellness centers. Again, really limited capacity. And then we've done a lot of work in the primary care clinics themselves. So at Hayward, Eastmont, Newark, and Highland, as a part of our PRIME program, which is the state-mandated waiver, we started screening patients in 2015 for both depression and substance use disorder. So that was great because we never routinely asked all of our patients the standard questions to see if they had any 
um, signs and symptoms of depression or substance use disorders. And, you know, not surprisingly for anyone who works in our system, about 30% of our patients, so one in three people walking through the door, screened positive. Um, and then obviously the only point of screening is if we're actually going to do something about that. And so we have built up a lot of capacity. Most of our primary care providers with psychiatry support now feel comfortable prescribing antidepressants, anti-anxiolytics. Um, some of them are doing treatment for substance use disorders, as I mentioned. But we know from a clinical perspective, meds are only a part of it and that therapy is really critical for all of these patients. And so when you think about the fact that in primary care, we see about 150,000 you know, individual visits a year and half those people are gonna have some, or not half, a third of those people are gonna have some sort of behavioral health need that would really benefit from therapy. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people. And I will say just as a primary care clinician myself, um, post COVID, that has only gotten worse. You know, all of my patients are being impacted in some way or another. They've either lost their jobs, their homes are experiencing hardship. Um, many of them know people who have been affected by COVID-19 or passed away from it. And so just the sheer amount of need in our patients has gone up exponentially since March. Um, and then when you think about the fact that we can only accommodate 23 patients at Fairmont and eight at Highland, you know, it's, it's not even a drop in the bucket. And so I think in terms of patients with mild to moderate mental illness, we are really not doing nearly enough for this population. Any questions um, on this slide? Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is Mark. Uh, can I pose a question? Yeah, of course. Um, you were mentioning about a student program earlier, right? Yep. Okay, and my question about that is, um, the student program, um, are you what well first of all let me ask it let me ask a kind of a, a, a two or three point question the first one is um what if anything um are we able to do in, in that program to incentivize actual more students to actually participate in the program uh that's number one and number two is is there is there a possibility to actually uh, contact the schools in which these students are actually receiving um, their education to possibly partner with them in terms of actually um, maybe adopting students on a trial basis as kind of like, um, what's the word I'm trying to find, um, kind of like a, um, not a student on vacation, but what do they call it, like a, like when a student goes uh, for sabbatical and goes to um, some program or to a hospital where they're learning skills and they're not from the area. In fact, they're from another state. Um, I'm talking about um, actually an internship kind of program that could be incentivized to, uh, to A, get more people to volunteer and B, um, maybe with some school participation of schools that provide education to the very, those same students um, that um, maybe the schools might help in, in giving them incentive uh, to do kind of like an internship or some kind of sabbatical program that would actually uh, give us some more capacity. These are great questions. I'm going to turn them over to Dr. Weiss, who oversees our student program. Okay. Sure. 
So I'm very passionate about training, um, and uh, so when I first came here to AHS two years ago, I was very excited to see that we had a psychology uh, training program. Uh, last year we had uh, 10 uh, practicum students who are training with us. This year we have eight. Uh, we have lots of interest. Students are very interested in these settings. They really want this kind of experience. Um, our biggest limitation right now is the, just the number of supervisors we have. Um, so um, we've been building back up. Um, we need a licensed psychologist to be able to supervise them. And so we've been building back up um, our psychology staff. Um, we now have five, I think, full-time psychologists. Um, so we'll be able to continue in the future to grow that program. Um, and right now, the students are only part-time. They're still in school. Um, but we are approved to do an internship level of training, um, so we can get those students that would come, like you said, from all over the country uh, and be with us full-time for a year doing training. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Dr. Rodria, I have a quick question. This is Loretta. Hi. Hi, Loretta. Um, is there a reason why we don't have more group therapy um, being we could utilize the students, et cetera. Um, is it a matter of space, that we don't have enough space for this, or is it a matter of uh, getting in contact with patients to get them to come to the meetings? I mean, what does it entail? Karen, you wanna take the first step? <laughs> yeah, you know, space is always the limiting factor for us. Um, yeah. Uh, we are right now looking at starting up some uh, telehealth groups um, for patients, okay. patients. Um, the, you know, not knowing how long this pandemic will go on, we have to start planning to serve patients in a different way. Right. Um, I think, yes, we want to rely on a combination of uh, in individual and group services in the future. Um, mm -hmm. We got really good going there for a while with our individual therapy services, um, but we, we weren't quite launching groups the way we wanted to. So that's still um, a priority of ours. Right. And I know uh, we used to have a pain clinic, and I know that has kind of just, it's dissolved over the years. Um, just different things like that, um, which I know were very helpful because I personally was involved in them at the time. So it would be great to see them back. <laughs> that is definitely a part of the future state plan, which we'll get to. And I will say um, our pain clinic a few years ago did dissolve, and we've actually rebuilt it from the ground up. So Dr. Irena Williams who's um, pain fellowship trained anesthesiologist is medical director of our pain clinic now and they've hired a dedicated pain psychologist. So they actually do do a lot of sort of integrated pain behavioral health treatment in their oh, clinic. Obviously because of COVID-19, they were having robust groups that got shut down and I think everyone is figuring out now, you know, we obviously can't have groups until this pandemic is over. And so how do we do that yeah. via Zoom? and technology, and so we're hoping to bring them all back, um, but it, it's taking a little bit of time to adapt to our virtual care model. Right, well, just um, FYI, you know that you can always count on the patient support group to help in any way, you know that. <laughs> That's what Absolutely. we're here for. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay, so maybe we can go to the next slide. Um, so the other 
big sort of population of patients is obviously those with severe mental illness, those with diagnoses such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, where, you know, the impact of mental illness on the individual patient's life and their family's lives can be much greater. And, you know, we all recognize there's a lot of overlap with the patient population that this board is interested in um, helping to improve the care of as well. And one thing which I didn't really know until I inherited these programs is the payment and funding streams for this population are totally different than those for the mild to moderate population. So care, mental health care for mild to moderate patients, at least in the state of California, and I think nationally post Affordable Care Act, is just a part of your normal health insurance now. But for severe mental illness, certainly in the state of California, this is still a carve out. So, um, you know, yay healthcare reform, but here in the state of California, if you have a diagnosis of severe mental illness, you get the care through money that goes from our state to the county. And in current state, you know, we are contracted with Alameda County um, for the services we have at John George Hospital and PES, um, but we are not contracted with Alameda County for any outpatient services. Um, and that means that if you're hospitalized, great, we take care of you. And if you have Medi-Cal or HPAC and need follow-up or outpatient care, you cannot be seen inside of Alameda Health System. You have to go either to one of the county-based behavioral health clinics or another clinic that they contract with. Um, so that was news to me and actually explains a lot of the sort of fragmented care that I see in my own patients. So just to give you a sense of the numbers, John George Hospital and PES obviously is the main point of inpatient psychiatric care in our county. They have about 3,000 admissions a year and 12,000 PES visits. And most of the patients they see, about two-thirds, are Medi-Cal, and then a third are about a mix of Medicare, HPAC, and commercial. Um, and so, like I mentioned, because we don't have a county contract, when even our John George psychiatrists are discharging patients, there's nowhere to send them to in our system. Um, and you can imagine that if there isn't a lot of care coordination, a lot of these patients just bounce back and forth. We do have um, two programs that serve patients with severe mental illness, our IOP, which is the Intensive Outpatient and Partial Hospitalization, or PHP programs that exist both at Highland and at the Fairmont campus. And then we also have a medication management program, which is psychiatrists who can you know, adjust medication dosages at both the Fairmont and the Highland campus. Um, the Highland campus, I think, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, but is seeing about 50 to 60 patients right now. And the Fairmont campus, I think, has about 120 or so. Um, and so, you know, together they see about 200 patients. Um, obviously, that's a similar drop in the bucket to the thousands of patients coming through PES and John George every year. And because we don't have that county contract, um, they only can see patients who have Medicare. And so most of these patients have Medicare and Medi-Cal, but it also means that it's one of the few areas where, you know, we kind of discriminate based off of patient insurance. That if you have Medicare, you get the service, and if you don't, you don't. Um, and so access for anyone who doesn't have Medicare is really, really challenging in our system. Any questions about that? Yes, I have one. This is Mark. Uh, based on what you just uh, said, I, I assume that primarily um, people um, who are not, um, who are basically of senior age, uh, who might be uh, um, um, experiencing uh, severe mental health issues, and uh, needs to be seen as an outpatient on the Medicare, 
obviously, given their age, um, they they would simply uh, that's automatically part of their insurance. But primarily, if, if if that's correct, then primarily anybody who's not of retirement age, and that's most people, <laughs> uh, although that's changing, of course. Uh, the, actually, the population of older people in the United States versus uh, total population uh, is growing. Um, the baby boomer, baby boomers are getting older. Uh, but that aside, uh, what does that mean for uh, for for the rest of uh, uh, the the, uh, the age differences? I mean, or is or am I reading that wrong? Uh, based on what you said, it sounded like like mainly uh, Medicare. Although there are exceptions, those are very few. Most Medicare uh, is given to people of retirement age, and that's considered anywhere from 63 to 65 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Am I wrong? You're, you're totally correct. And uh, I see Dr. Francis chatted in that people on um, SSDI or disability would be a small exception. And that's true. When we look at the demographic data of who is being served in these programs, it very much skews to that older population that you're referring to. And so for anyone who doesn't have Medicare, you know, mainly people who are younger, um, I think also people who are disproportionately um, minorities, racial and ethnic minorities who tend to be on Medi-Cal, um, all of those patients, we have to link them to care outside of Alameda Health System. Wow. Yeah, and that that's is a major, that's yeah. a major, well, here's my other question, and, I, and I'll leave it alone unless I want to ask another question if they like. My other question, my follow-up is, is uh, we have contracts in the other two spaces, uh, why are we not given the contract in the third space? Simply because they already look at the numbers and they're not willing um, to, to give outpatient insurance to, to uh, that number of possible patients? Um, I think we'll get to it in the next slide, but the preview I'll give you is that I think there is a deep philosophical difference um, in terms of what is the best model of care that is scalable and appropriate for this population um, on, you know, in terms of folks nationally and those who are leading Alameda County Behavioral Health Care Services. So, you know, what, again, I'm not a behavioral health person, so I've learned all of this in the last year, but what I've discovered is that most counties throughout the state, I think pretty much every single county, have phased out their IOP or intensive outpatient programs because it's a really intensive model. You know, patients have to come every single day. They have to come in person. Um, it takes a lot of resources. And as medicine as in, has evolved, a lot of counties and sort of national best practice has moved to having more of a community-based model that's decentralized that can meet patients wherever they're at and don't require them to come in every single day. So um, Alameda County has felt that, you know, they absolutely, you know, are interested in contracting with us to serve patients with severe mental illness, but not for this model of care. And so that is what Dr. Weiss is going to cover in the next few slides. Okay. But it's a great question. It gets at the heart of the matter. We can go to the next slide. Okay, so some of the key takeaways we had from this assessment after talking to all of these different stakeholder groups and doing our research, um, for the SUD group, the substance use disorders, you know, the key takeaway was that there is a great demand for services, 
We still have some capacity to bring in new patients. Um, we are able to see the, the full uh, population um, that we serve at AHS. Uh, and we are really making progress on internally making uh, less siloed, more integrated care. So we are really moving forward in a good direction for those services. For the mild to moderate mental health uh, group, uh, there is a great demand for treatment, um, it, but our capacity is very limited. So there's a real mismatch. There's lots and lots and lots of patients who need therapy services. We know that because we're screening them in primary care and we're sending them out um, because we just don't have the space um, with the current staff we have to take more patients. Uh, when we look at all of the behavioral health staff we have in outpatient, about 90% of them, 90% of their caseloads are filled with IOP patients, and only about 10% of that space um, is filled by patients who are in the mild to moderate um, category. Um, so patients are having a significant wait time for care, either in AHS or when they get referred out. A lot of times it's hard to coordinate care if it's somebody from a different agency and we're not even sure if the patient ever showed up there for treatment. Uh, so, you know, this is really showing what numerous studies on collaborative care have already proven that when patients are treated by a treatment team that is co-located and collaborating, patients do better. Uh, and so we want to continue and bring more of our behavioral health services into the integrated model where they can get treatment at the same place where they're getting their medical care. Uh, next slide. Uh, can, can I ask a question? Sure. Um, just out of curiosity, has there been any discussion about, about uh, the possibility of uh, uh, physical face-to-face uh, -face meetings with other possible partners or potential partners that might be able to help uh, and discuss um, what, uh, what makes it difficult for either side, whether it be public or private or nonprofit, uh, to coordinate with a hospital program, um, um, what communication problems exist for, for that to, to occur, and uh, once we're able to identify what reasons there are for that and whether or not even uh, one entity wants to meet with another entity, I mean, uh, it would be good to know um, who wants to uh, participate in trying to, uh, in, in actually trying to bridge gaps and then identify those particular groups, whether it be nonprofit or, or small clinics or whatever the case may be, and then to uh, and then to invite them um, to have a powwow, a face-to-face -face powwow, about how um, how each one um, can basically work with the other uh, to try to actually uh, mend fences that will work for both parties, uh, and so so both parties would actually share the load. Uh, so no one party is responsible for. Uh, any, any particular sector, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that those kind of community partnerships are absolutely critical. Um, we, have, uh, we have two community health workers, specifically for behavioral health in our system, that work at our wellness centers. 
And that's one of the, the things that they are tasked with doing is reaching out to these community-based organizations, building those relationships so that it's not just a cold call. We're just sending somebody to this agency. We actually know the people there. We have already uh, developed relationships with them and we can, it makes it a lot easier for us to continue to collaborate while we're both treating the same patients. Right. It's definitely a two-pronged approach. We have to continue. We're never going to completely be self-reliant at AHS and do everything ourselves. Um, so we have to continue to build those relationships. And I think our strategy of doing that with our community health workers has really been working. Okay, great. If I could just say something maybe around the beacon uh, work since um, I've done some of that in prior, prior roles. I think um, the way that the health, the Medi-Cal health plans, which is you know the major plan that that um, that is the payer for people experiencing homelessness, whether it's Alameda Alliance or Anthem Blue Cross, sort of subcontract you know therapy for mild to moderate illness out to Beacon to you know I think the lists go run to like 80 to 100 providers in the community. Um, We've tried, you know, Mark, when you and I were working together at the Trust Clinic, for example, in other contexts, to really figure out how to engage that network in a way that um, allowed us to do more sort of collaborative style care across those organizations. Right. And I think just the sheer, like, number and the size of that network and the diversity of that network and the, the, the way that it's not, um, it's not a very facilitated network. You know, there's not a lot of, like, meeting structures or places you can go to do that makes it a real challenge to coordinate um, care with external providers for the mild to moderate population. And that's something that makes me really excited about the idea of bringing more capacity in-house. I mean, I am, I am all for community partnerships everywhere we can establish them, and we absolutely need them. And I think um, I've seen the really major difference between having the therapist co-located with me versus trying to get someone through a referral process that sends them through a network to a therapist somewhere outside. And We've, we've really, really worked hard, you know, in this community, I think, to, to try to collaborate across that divide, and it's just been a repeated challenge. Right. Okay. Um, Dr. Francis, is, uh, this is Loretta. Is funding for all these different um, community health centers, do they come from different areas of the budget, or how does that work? Because I know BAX has their program, Roots has their program, Jerusalem Vasquez has their program. And, you know, they're all community health-related centers, but is the funding the same as what AHS gets, or is it different? For which programs? Well, substance abuse and the mental health, primarily. I think Paul have outlined the, the big sort of divide between the serious mental illness and, um, and mild to moderate mental illness. Um, substance use disorder, sort of, there is a specialty system for substance use disorders, and also there's payment through the, the, the Medi-Cal system that pays us and pays the community health centers for the substance use disorder services. Um, and then there are lots and lots of little grant-funded sources, Mental Health Services Act, SAMHSA, that do lead to different programs from the county that are carved out for healthcare for the homeless and HRSA dollars that are right. carved out for different subpopulations of people. Ryan White dollars for you know, people with, people with um, living with HIV. So I think it, it you know, beyond those the sort of big divide that, that Dr. Gubaria talked about, I think there's also this, you know, there's a whole patchwork of other um, grant-funded uh, programs that kind of support this system. Okay. 
Um, and so the last group was those with serious mental illness. So we, we also felt like there was a significant gap in our system and our ability to, to treat these patients. Um, we are only able to offer treatment right now for those who have uh, Medicare and Medi-Cal, and we only have the intensive level of treatment. So it's really, you know, we have this one thing, and I will have to say that this, the IOP programs have been run by AHS for like 20 years. Patients get great care there. The patients who are in care there, they, they love it. It's very meaningful to them. Staff are very passionate. So there's nothing to say that, that that's wrong or that the treatment that is there has been subpar. That's not at all what we want to put across. It's been very good care, but the, the issue is that it's just treating such a small, small group of patients compared to um, kind of a broader community at AHS that needs the treatment. Um, one of the uh, other things about the SMI treatment we do right now is with the IOP model, um, there's significant throughput issues. So some of the patients who have been there have been at that level of care for years, multiple years. Um, and so when patients don't really move on, then, then we hit a ceiling. Um, so the 200 patients that are being treated right now, you know, we probably only have had maybe 30 or 40 patients turn over in the last year. So it's mostly treating the same group of patients year to year, um, which also doesn't give us, um, uh, we're not treating a lot of unduplicated patients. We're treating a lot of the same patients with multiple services. Okay, the next slide. So based on this assessment, um, it was ambulatory leadership's recommendation that we look at a service redesign. Um, the two main things that stood out to us is that we want to improve and ensure access for the full spectrum of patients with behavioral health needs. So regardless of whether they have HPAC or Medi-Cal or Medicare, and regardless of whether they're mild, moderate, or severe, we want to have a treatment option for them at AHS. Um, we also want to minimize our revenue loss and move towards achieving financial sustainability. That's important for all of our services and real critical issue at AHS. Um, typically, behavioral health services are reimbursed worse, not as well as other services. Um, so it's, it's even harder and we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make this as you know, fiscally responsible a model as possible. Um, so there were three options that we kind of thought of could help us achieve these goals. Um, and we looked into these further and did financial models for each of them. Um, the first was to keep IOP, but do some significant changes to improve their throughput um, and to improve um, the number of patients that we're seeing. Um, we thought there were some things we could do to better make that a um, discharge option for John George. Um, and so that would be what number one would be. Um, and it's, that, wouldn't, that still wouldn't address our kind of other issues, um, but it would um, uh, minimize the revenue loss and improve some of the throughput. So that's the benefits of that one. The second one is to transition to a behavioral health wellness model. Um, so um, this idea initially came from discussions with county behavioral health. Um, uh, like Paula said, you know, the county is not interested in um, doing more IOP intensive level programs um, in that model. That's not where their system is. 
Um, they're investing in other kinds of treatment, like um, assertive community treatment, full-service partnerships. Uh, but what they were interested in is a wellness center where patients could come for regularly scheduled appointments or drop in, um, and we could do assessments some quick linkage, and we could start treatment with them. Um, so the county was interested in continuing to work with us to contract for that kind of service. Um, within that behavioral health wellness model, we would also be able to um, continue um, serving uh, the mild to moderate population through the contracts we already have. Um, we could just um, devote more of the um, client or the, the clinical caseloads um, towards slots for those patients so we could see more of that volume. And then number three would be a combination of one and two. So it would be a small IOP program plus the wellness center all in one location. Next slide. So what does this look like? How do the three models compare? So for patient access, um, models two and three really um, allow us to open up access for people with Medi-Cal, for people with HPAC, um, for people with mild to moderate conditions. Um, so it would open up access for all of those different populations that we want to be able to serve. Um, IOP, just continuing to keep IOP option one would not improve our um, access to those other populations. Next slide. For patient volume. Um, so if we compare the different options, um, option two uh, gives us more, a higher volume of, of patients served. So um, we can have, there will be more, actually visits, more unique patients served, and more on um, a concurrent caseload than either option one or option three. And some of that has to do with, um, you know, the, the length of treatment um, and uh, doing a combination of uh, uh, both group and individual services. Um, for options two and three. Next slide. And then finances. Um, so of the, this was really hard. I worked a lot with our financial team on trying to model out these three different options. Um, what it looks like is they're they're all roughly the same cost. Um, both direct and, and with the indirect included. Option two um, is um, a little bit lower um, because um, option two, the finances that you see right now does not include a new contract with the county. We are really, really hoping and we are pretty confident that we will be able to contract with the county for um, services for the SMI population but we are not that far into those discussions, so I didn't, we didn't want to include anything in here um, because we're really not far enough along. Um, so um, if we do get that county contract, um, you know, all the costs will be roughly the same. Um, however, um, there is definitely a revenue difference. Um, all of them lose money, unfortunately. <laughs> We're looking for ways we can continue to improve this, but just the reimbursement rates are, are just not great um, for these services. Um, we, we know that uh, IOP right now, are, we are only getting reimbursed about 35% of our claims. Um, and so in current state, that program is losing a lot of money. Um, 
We can improve on that, sure, but in, in order to actually see the numbers you're looking at here, we would have to get 100% of collection um, for IOP. And so to go from 35% to 100 is pretty not realistic. So although you see that that's the smallest loss, what that loss would actually be is, is likely a lot higher just on our current reimbursements that we're getting. Um, there is some FTE changes with, um, with those um, models, um, but again, if, if we get um, a county contract for option two, um, pretty much they'll all be about the same for FTE. Go to the next slide. Thank you. Okay, so um, for the redesign recommendations, um, so um, Del Vecchio Finley expressed in one of the quality committee meetings that um, his preference was for option number two um, because of it being able to tick a lot of those boxes of things we, we wanted to um, improve on. It expands the access to multiple payers. Um, it eliminates disparity based on insurance. Um, access for people experiencing homelessness. Um, uh, it'll be a lot more um, also uh, client-centered care. They don't have, you know, IOP is a very strict, you have to come to this, you know, three hours a day, this many days a week. Um, this kind of model where we're really um, focusing on individual and group therapy is going to be a lot more flexible for, for patients. Um, and option two also improves our financial sustainability. Uh, the current IOP staff have um, uh, spoken in um, various meetings and um, made it known that their option, their preferred option is number three because they really would like to keep the IOP program in place. Um, so we are now awaiting final recommendations and approval um, for the budget um, so we uh, can begin our next phase. And if you just want to do the next slide, I'll go over that real quick and we can take Okay, so um, once the final budget is approved um, and, you know, we find out the details about what um, of those options um, uh, was chosen, we will start transition planning. Um, no matter which of those three options, it's, there's going to be a lot of work. Um, we are pursuing specialty mental health site certification um, so that we can move forward with the county and contract to serve the SMI Medi-Cal population. Um, and we are developing, we will need to develop policies and procedures for the new clinic model. Um, uh, as we move towards the new model, we will also look for increasing admissions for outpatient services and re really being able to start to meet that need that we know is there. Um, but whatever change is announced, um, there won't be any immediate changes. We see this as being a pretty long transition process, both because of the amount of work that is needed um, to prepare for the future state, um, and because we want to be very sensitive for um, any kind of changes this might need for current clients. And we want to make sure that we allow plenty of time if there are transitions that need to happen, um, that we do those thoughtfully um, and with our partners at the county and in the community. Um, Karen, um, on the IOP um, programs, do you serve patients that are court ordered? 
Rarely. We, we do. We don't just, we don't not take them, but I don't right. get very many referrals from criminal justice. Okay. So by, um, by uh, getting a mental health site certification, would that mean that you could do that then? And I don't know, would that be something they're considering? Um, I'm not really sure. It, it would be something that if, you know, the county expressed that they had a need for that, we would definitely explore that option. I know what the county's told us so far is um, what they really see their consumer asking for and where they feel like there is a gap is in uh, like more like low barrier clinics where people can walk in and get their needs met. There's too many of this, you know, places you have to have an appointment and then if you don't make the appointment, mm-hmm. get rescheduled. And so really what they see is, you know, the population needs a, an option where they can go and they can get some immediate um, needs met. And so that's why they, you know, really thought our sites would particularly be great at that um, because we already yeah. have patients getting other services. I know, um, I know the um, Tri-City program in Fremont, they, um, in their HIV clinic, they have one day a week where it is strictly walk-in. And then the other days are by appointment only. And I think they've been doing that for a while now. It's been very successful. Yeah, that's great. I, I you know. Um, I have a quick question, or not a quick question, but um, more information. Uh, what I'm seeing is sort of an assessment of needs and then what the costs are to meet needs. And it sounds like that there is um, momentum to either go with option two or option three based on the metrics that you lined up. Well, what I'm curious to know is your patient outcomes and where that, how that is being accounted for. And it sounds like IOP is much more intensive program. So what are the patient outcomes that we see in that versus that for a behavioral health wellness center program? Are we seeing, yes, it's a long-term program or it's more intensive. Are you seeing better patient outcomes for that than you are? In, in you know option two for example or just the behavior health as well wellness center uh, that's well, a great question I you know I I did a lot of research I tried to find some studies that would compare the different models yeah. and I couldn't find it um, there are you know that was kind of the question I had you know is there, are there studies to show that the IOP level of care, even though it's more expensive and more intensive, is worth it because the outcomes are that much better? Um, there really isn't a way to compare our program to the literature that's out there because no one really does IOP the way that we do it. Most IOP programs are shorter term and therefore patients who are um, acutely in need but not severely mentally ill and chronically mentally ill. So most of the IOP uh, programs you'll see out there will be people who will come out of the hospital, will come to IOP for six weeks of intensive treatment, and then they'll go back to a regular outpatient level of treatment. Uh, The way we treat patients in IOP, serving them for years, there's no comparison in the literature. So it's, it's really hard. We don't, we don't really have that data to show. Um, we do, um, uh, you know, the literature out there around low barrier clinics, um, like a wellness center, uh, is that they, they have a much higher um, uh, retention of patients when, when you um, uh, offer patients more options. Um, they're more likely to be successful in choosing something that's gonna work for them. 
Um, so the, there is significant literature out there that that model um, is effective with patients. Okay. I mean, I think Thank the you. other thing to emphasize in response to that question has to do with homelessness and the there there are relatively few, if any, patients experiencing homelessness in the current IOP program, if I'm right. Whereas a wellness center model that's part of a county continuum that includes community mental health models is much more likely to be able to serve people experiencing homelessness. And I think you're not gonna get apples to apples comparisons in the literature around that, but I think the consensus among academics who study homelessness would be very much in support of, you know, intensive models that are more like assertive community treatment or critical time intervention. There is, you know, good data for programs like that in terms of designing intensive services that are community-based and that are centered around people's lives and that work toward transitioning people to working with their natural supports, which is very different than an intensive program where, again, you show up to the same place and then when it's time to go back to your life, your life's really different than that, than the circumstances of that place. I would say there's a pretty strong scientific consensus around that. Maybe Karen's a little bit um, wanting to be, you know, more diplomatic about that. But I, I think particularly speaking from the, from the place of people experiencing homelessness, it's pretty clear, I would say, what, what, the, what the evidence base would say around it. Whether our implementation achieves the evidence base is all under your question there, Neha, and I think our ability to, to, to capture that data depends on being able to identify who's homeless, you know, for us in the, in the homeless health center and then to be able to capture some of the clinical outcomes. I think we're doing better with PHQ-27, PHQ-9 uh, measures in, in the ambulatory setting, but I think this is something that, you know, across our system we're looking at. But at least I'm happy that we're, the thing we're striving for is something that's closer to, you know, the thing we're recommending is something that's closer to the evidence-based model. So 
we would hope or we are striving um, in the new model to make um, our services and who we're are seeing reflective of the population. Mark, do you want to ask your question? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. Um, yes, I did. Uh, one of my questions about within the program itself, we, we were talking about uh, patients, and that's the word we use, patients. Out of curiosity, um, um, how do we have any um, data in regards to to women being treated? And 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 what I mean by that is, of course, they could be called their patients, of course. Uh, but what I'm getting at is um, um, in a mental health um, in the mental health aspect, there there's there's obviously I would imagine um, that obviously there are some. Um, mental health issues that come up for women that are not necessarily uh, affect men. And as a result of that, um, what, if anything, can you say about how women might be treated differently within the program, and especially referral to John George or, or outpatient mental health as opposed to men uh, in regards to the different issues that might, might come up that are not indicative of the other? Hello? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a stab at that. So I, what we currently do and what we would do in any future stage um, is we want to be responsive to the needs of the patients or consumers or clients, whatever we're going to call them, call them different things in all different places I've worked. Um, but we would want to, to hear from the community. Um, and so in current state, there are groups specifically for women. There are groups specifically for um, older adults. There are groups specifically for, for people with anxiety. So we would, we would ask um, for feedback from, from patients who are coming in about what kind of topics or what kind of things that they would find of interest. And so we very likely would have some groups specifically for um, uh, issues or needs um, for our um, uh, female clients. Um, and we might have some other breakout groups like that where we more specifically look at that population's needs, um, like in a, some kind of a group that we offer. Okay, thank you. Like we're ready. On, uh, yeah, on you can you can make a closing comment maybe, and then we okay, can we can um, let Lucia move us on. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I'm I'm very excited to move forward um, with changes. Um, I think that you know this is really going to help bring um, bring our services to the the level and what is uh, being needed by our community. Sorry, my son is distracting people. <laughs> right as I'm trying to be with my, Mine's here too, so you can <laughs> <laughs> bedtime. Um, uh, <laughs> But I think we also have to be um, responsive to the times we're living in. So, for example, you know, a lot of people are calling in with COVID-related anxiety right now. And so, you know, as we move forward, we want to look at, like, what does our community really need and how can we do more prevention is the other thing that I would like to start to address. 
So if we know that, um, you know, uh, disparities exist and, and uh, we know that patients who um, experience adverse childhood experiences are more likely to develop um, behavioral health disorders, how can we intervene earlier? How can we offer services to patients before they need acute care, before, you know, they're scoring a 25 on the PHQ-9? How can we start to, to address these issues earlier with our patients? And I think we do that through our work in the wellness centers, through our collaboration um, and collaborative care um, with our primary care um, partners and, and team-based care in the clinic. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Karen, for joining. Um, I love seeing my boss kiss her baby on the phone. Uh, that's like the best. <laughs> um, and Hi, I, okay. I just, I'm really excited. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God, so adorable. <laughs> Um, Thank you all I'm, I'm really so, so much. Oh, oh, look, you got like double kid bonus here. Working moms in action. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for lending us your moms this evening for a little bit of time. And um, I'm just really excited to have this kind of dialogue and partnership around, you know, where our services are going for you all to be able to engage. I think share your really amazing thoughts as a board with our leadership team and for our leadership team to really share some of the work that we're, you know, it's really challenging to do, but I think we're really excited to be doing to make our care more accessible, um, you know, especially to the populations yeah. that, that need it the most. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally being upstage, which is awesome. Um, yeah. Lucy, I'll hand it back to you. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thank um, you all so, so much. We really appreciate it. Hi. The oral hygiene of my older <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Carrie and, and Pablo. Um, so I, I think you're you're welcome to kind of you know keep staying on the meeting. Um, but if you're is at the end of your item, it is, and right. I think it's bedtime, so I'm gonna hop yeah. off. But I really like look your, forward to coming back. Thank you all so so you're much. Welcome to leave us. <laughs> but thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. 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 Okay. So uh, we're going to move on to the next item. Thank you everyone so much for your questions and your, um, uh, um, we'll move forward now. So we have our uh, discussion for, so we have Heather, our 2020 Performance Goal Action Plan Report. All right, thank you so much. Um, so each quarter we bring you a report on our action plan goals. Remember in our sub-recipient agreement, we had um, several goals to meet. Um, so right now we're working with uh, goal C, which is patient experience and patient satisfaction. Um, we already reported out on the first action item, which was the um, AOC AQC identification of my chart as a key tool. So I consider that one kind of wrapped up. We identified it, that's being worked on. Um, and the second part was to um, select our, our group that's representing our data, and we determined through evaluation and analysis that looking at all of the ambulatory data was um, a sufficient and accurate representation that included people experiencing homelessness. We weren't seeing a huge divergence amongst smaller populations, so we're going to be looking at the whole population. Um, and then I also will talk to you a little bit about the patient experience survey. Um, that one is included in our program report, so I won't be talking about it during this item, but rather in the next item on item F. Um, 
and uh, just for number four, just so you know that Alameda Health System and Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program have resumed their their um, monthly meetings. They've been on hi hiatus when we first started this report out because of the COVID pandemic. And so those are, are happening again. So we're back on track. And uh, the purpose of those meetings and the reasons it's mentioned here is so that we can establish some long-term goals for the health center that we work collaboratively towards achieving um, so that it's not just about the goals of Alameda Health System, but the, the larger Alameda County Health Center and how do we help to achieve those goals um, as part of that larger health center and how do they help us to um, achieve those goals as well. If you want to go to the next slide, Brenda, thank you so much. Um, the other part is, is, num is letter F, which is the patient grievance and adverse effects. We provided this data also um, in the last quarterly report, and so I will be showing that to you as well. Going to go to the next page. Um, so the first then, so here's your data to support the action items. Um, again, this is uh, referring to our CGCAP scores for the quarter, um, and this is from uh, as you can see in front of you, it shows the trend line from July 2019 to May 2020, and we determined that this was the best line to look at. Um, there are a couple of different ways that we tend to look at this data, and this is called the rolling 12-month data, which means it rolls up the information from 12 months at that point in time, so it shows us a nice trend line. Sometimes when we're looking at it when it's just month to month, it's not giving us a real good picture of what's been happening over a period of time, so that's why the rolling 12-month data is used. Um, you can also see that um, the, the dotted line shows the goal. That's our goal line. That's the, the, the score that we're trying to get. And remember, this is the top box score. How many people in our clinics are rating that question with a 9 or a 10? And the rate the provider was the one that we had selected for this year. Um, and so then you can also see the individual clinics and how they're achieving that goal, and you see overall an upward trend that's um, happening as we got through the end of May. Um, the data always does take a little bit of time to come in because, remember, um, the patients come and see us, and then we reach out to them and ask the questions. And so um, this is always going to be a little bit of a lag um, between the time they've had their appointments, the time we collect the data, and the time we're able to report out the data. You want to move to the next slide? And then here's our um, uh, patient risk, uh, patient relations um, report out regarding our risk events and patient relations events. And just as a reminder on this memo, we have the definitions of what the patient relations is, uh, event versus the patient risk event. So a patient relations event is when a patient um, files a complaint or a grievance, and we're acting on that. And a patient risk event is um, uh, something that has happened that has the capacity to cause harm to a person. And then there are different categories. And as you can see um, in this period, which we're reporting out on, which is from April 1st through June 30th, so quarter two of our calendar year, um, remember we had divided up into total events for our organization, how many of those events are within the scope of work, and then how many of those are for patients experiencing homelessness in that scope. Um, when I'm talking about scope in this case, it's that ambulatory care scope, which includes patients not experiencing homelessness, so really drilling down into all of the departments and places where we're seeing patients, um, and then specifically drilling into, well, how many of those are patients experiencing homelessness? Um, and you can see that in this period, um, there were four patient relations events uh, within ambulatory care, and zero, zero of them were by people experiencing homelessness. 
Um, and similarly, there were nine um, patient risk events identified um, in ambulatory care, and zero of them were for patients experiencing homelessness. And that concludes item E, unless there are any questions. <coughs> All right. Um, shall we move on to F? I, I see a nod from Lucia, so I'm going to take that as uh, she, she's shuffled us on. Okay. Can you go on to the next slide, please? This is our program re report um, where we're going to uh, give you all the, the latest and greatest updates for the Homeless Health Center and the Mobile Health Clinic. So during um, September, we had our next monitoring meeting, our compliance meeting with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program with a focus on um, finance. Um, we have not yet received our report back from Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. However, we do have a verbal statement from them that indicated that they are going to um, include a finding um, that's related to challenges in reporting all of the eligible encounters for patients experiencing homelessness. I think I've mentioned in the, in the last meeting that um, we haven't been able to normally report our data every month on how many um, encounters and patients we're seeing in Alameda Health System for people experiencing homelessness, and we've not been able to give them that data in the way that they need it, and we've been working to resolve that um, by building a registry. And so, um, so they are going to do a, a finding, which means that they're going to say, hey, this is not the way it needs to be and it needs to be fixed. Um, the good news is we are already well underway in fixing that issue. Um, and we're getting reports from our IT team regularly on the progress of the build of that registry. Um, but it is something that we intend or expect to see um, in their written report to us about this meeting, about this uh, monitoring uh, monitoring meeting. I'm going to call it an audit because that's the only word I can come up with right now. Um, the next, we're going to move on to our mobile health clinic. Um, I do want to announce that we have a new phone tree for our mobile health clinic, um, and that is if you call 437, uh, five, I'm sorry, erase that, come on back, 510-437-5086, which was formerly my phone number, my, my, my desk number, um, is now a phone tree entryway. So if you call my desk number, you will get a phone tree, and it will allow you to access several things within our homeless health center system. Um, this was prompted partially by an error somewhere on the internet, um, which prompted people to call me for their um, mental health referral. <laughs> 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 once or twice, twice a week, I would have to forward that call, which is fine, except for when I'm in the car and answering the phone. It's really hard for me to forward <laughs> that to get the patient the best service they need. So. Um, what this now allows them to do is, as soon as they call my number, they can hit one and they'll get filled. They'll be routed directly to our behavioral health clinic, our outpatient behavioral health clinic, which, as you just saw, is run by um, by Karen. She's fantastic and her team, so she, they are all in good hands with that. Um, one of the other great things that's included in our phone tree is that you can press a number and get directly to one of our clinical staff. So you'll get the mobile health clinic directly, so it forwards to one of their cell phones. And there's also now a weekly where's the clinic at um, update. So uh, it's a message only 
phone where when you call each week, it will tell you where the mobile health clinic is that week, day by day. So you'll hear That's one exciting. of I know, you can hey. number and one of the teams will say, and on Wednesday, and the day, <laughs> the place. That's so cool. That's great. Yeah, so they're pretty excited about it too. Um, this uh, past month, September, we saw 58 uh, clinical encounters and 103 enabling um, visits. And so you see we're slowly creeping up from our initial low from July. You saw there was a pretty big dip, and now we're, we're, we're headed back up. And part of this is about rearranging our schedule and really trying to optimize the use of the mobile health clinic. If you can scroll down a little bit more. Um, on that page for me. Thank you so much. Next page. Uh, excellent. Um, so I mentioned that I was going to talk to you about the mobile health um, survey. Um, so we were finally able to implement the mobile health survey um, because we're not seeing a lot of patients in person. We're doing this by phone. And so what I have is just a little bit of data around that um, effort. Uh, the team has made nearly 200 calls. Um, and you can see that one of the challenges of making those calls is numbers that are out of order or no longer working for patients and no answer. We have a few people, once we reach them, who aren't interested in giving us feedback, but we have had about 29%, uh, I'm sorry, 29 patients have replied so far. We have a pretty lofty goal for completing um, patient surveys. Um, I just want to remind you that we set this goal before there was a global pandemic and before we had to change everything we were doing. So the initial um, survey was intended to reach about 465 patients and to, to let you know that we've reached 29 for the We've reached many, many more individually for clinical care, um, but um, we are ever expecting every patient to reply to our survey. Uh, but we'll continue to work on that, and um, the team really does enjoy asking for that feedback. I will say the feedback is really, really positive feedback, and. And the best thing about it is it, it boosts the team's morale. I think that's the most effective use of this data so far because, as you see, you know, 100% of the patients are indicating that they feel respected by the team. Um, there's questions that also ask whether or not um, they feel that the provider listened to them and that the provider understood what was going on. And those are, by and large, I want to say 28 out of 29 patients are giving that a top box score of five as well. Um, and just a couple of patients here and there might say that it was a four. So there's nothing that's been um, overtly negative in any of the responses from the patient. And they also provide an opportunity for patients to give um, specific comments, which are also tend to be very positive, that they enjoyed the care that they received, that they really liked the staff and things like that. They felt that they were helped. One patient said, even though he didn't feel, um, he didn't speak English, that he felt that he really was cared for and that the translation was available for him um, to get the care that he needed. So that's an example. Um, I mentioned, you know, here this, this continuing challenge of our, of our data um, that we're working on, and I, I hope to have a really robust report for you um, in November. We do have a, I'm going to say it's a, it's a deadline, but unfortunately I think our meeting our meeting hits before the deadline, so I might not have much except for like, I'm so excited I get to look at the data next week when I meet with you next month um, because their deadline is about November 15th or so to say, yes, it's ready to look at. Um, but with any luck, I'll, I'll have a little something to, to show us that it's working. And that's the end of my report, unless there are any questions. 
Um, have you, was that G, sorry, did I miss, or was that? That, that was ready to go to G. Okay. G. Let's move forward to G then, uh, the subrecipient agreement 2021 preparation. All right, so, you know, Lucia was reminding us all that it's almost time to vote, uh, nominate, and then vote. And uh, there's a plug for voting as well right there. Um, it's also time to think about our 2021 subrecipient agreement because we're beginning the negotiations um, with the county. And so the request that, I, uh, that we made to you was to review the 2020 agreement so that we could consider what kinds of changes we would be interested in making for the 2021 agreement. So the idea behind this discussion that we're having right now is to really generate that information from you so that we can convert that into um, requests from the county if we if we feel that that's a good match um, to incorporate into the 2021 agreement. So this is really an opening up of questions around and reminders of the 2020 subrecipient agreement. Um, in our in our last agreement, that included some reports um, that I that I reported out on. So these um, performance goals that we had included. It also included the RBA metrics, and it also includes the specific budget that generally, or rather, right now, um, funds most of the mobile health clinics. And so now would be the time to discuss. Hey, is there something different? Do you have? I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest small, and I think Damon has something he wants to say also about the budget and how in this time of COVID, with all the changes happening in the world, how our subrecipient agreement and budget may still look the same despite mm -hmm. the environment of our, of our life being extremely different, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's an opportunity not just to talk about what's likely to happen with this particular contract, but just what are the elements of the agreement we have with the county of the work that we're supposed to do since the subrecipient agreement is such an anchor for our work. I think um, although in the next two months, you know, we, we may not really have a window given everything that's happening to make big changes to this agreement, there are big changes that are happening in the world. And so even understanding, you know, your perspective as a co-applicant board on those changes will help us, you know, evolve this agreement with, you know, something that may come up two or three months from now because of, you know, something that happens with the federal budget or the county budget. So um, I think I think um, it's helpful if you express those kind of ideas in this conversation too for us. What, what's important to you all um, that maybe maybe won't come up in this specific agreement, but that we need to keep in mind as we're as we're managing our relationship with the county and and we're structuring the big sort of pillars of our work, like our subrecipient agreement. Well, hey, uh, Damon, this is Mark. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, um, this may not be related, but uh, just out of curiosity, um, are there certain aspects of the agreement in which we can propose, um, that we can propose various changes, and that those those changes would be looked at uh, very uh, seriously and possibly adopted if we were uh, currently here to present some aspect of the agreement that um, uh, some element that might not be in the current agreement. Is that 
is that is that is that is the floor open for that? I think uh, it is to an extent, but what I would say is we, we understand from our conversations with the county already that we're not we're not likely to you know have a huge window to open up or change the change the agreement very much. I think what's more useful than specific proposals for us would be general principles, where then we can figure out where are the opportunities to drive that principle into you know a little change in this agreement now that then becomes a bigger change in the future. I think that's more realistic for how the agreement is likely to change this year with the county um, versus, you know, we want to see this program or we want to see this budgetary change. I think those are those are less likely to happen. I think we're sort of anticipating the mobile health program will continue as it is. The, you know, agreement um, with the county with regard to how we take care of people experiencing homelessness across our wellness centers and how that folds into the broader health center. Th- that's there's not going to be much change in, in sort of those those elements we're pretty we're pretty clear on in terms of our conversation so far but uh, I think uh, you know the prin- the principles would be really helpful um, if there's if there's a principle that you want to you know that you want to stamp um, then I think that would be really helpful um I, I remember last time we reviewed it you know there was a like chart with the, oh, I think it's on here, but like the budget, when we're looking at the budget for the agreement, I'm just wondering how much flexibility there is in reallocating, um, you know, I, I think what comes to mind in times of uncertainty is, you know, the ability to be flexible. Um, so if there is, you know, given that, you know, there may not be a huge change in the amount of money that, you know, we're receiving. Um, is there flexibility in how that money is used, um, you know, just given the circumstances and based on what the needs or the year? Um, uh, uh, I'm going to suggest that, um, Brenda, can you pull up page number 62? Hey, look at that. So she's gone ahead and pulled it up so that you can see it in front of you. I'm not expecting that they, uh, that they will be allocating. Um, and, okay, so in this past year, there were supplemental funding that was suddenly available based on us being a part of the Homeless Health Center. And so that was added into our budget as an amendment. Um, you'll see in this budget from 2020, this is what it looks like without that supplemental funding. We don't know whether there will be additional supplemental funding uh, next year uh, due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so when, when I hear you talk about flexibility, a principle that might be in alignment with that, as, as Damon was describing it, was this idea of if there's supplemental funding, we want to make sure that we have an opportunity to make proposals, be at the table, and talk about what's best for the health center, which includes us. Um, you know, that's not a principle that necessarily existed this past year when supplemental funding became available. And I think you remember in uh, both commission meetings and in this meeting, um, the drafting of specific language to the county to say, we want to be part of that. We should be a part of it. What can you do to help make sure that we're a part of it? And so this, that might be a principle that, gets, that could be added to this agreement. Um, with that idea that we expect there will be some funds that we want to 
do something with in response to whatever that current situation is that might need to be developed later on. Yeah. I would say some of these, um, the it would be really difficult to change um, some of this funding uh, due to it being so tied to staff and yeah. staff at Global Health Clinic. And it's really our mechanism that we use this grant to support the staff. And um, there are additional funds. And so, for example, um, I think we had added in last year the $5,000 for training with the intent that that would be used to support a CAB member going to the National Healthcare for the Homeless Conference. And then COVID happened. We couldn't go. That didn't happen. So I would say that for, for small things, I, it, it's totally possible. Um, I would say that these funds down in operating expenses, even the county is reasonably flexible if we have decided that we don't need a certain um, certain funds, like if we don't need uh, the pharmacy funds, if, if we end up not expending all of that money in pharmacies, that we can use it in other places in operations, but we wouldn't be able to move it up into salary. Um, so it could be uh, reallocated. So for example, um, with COVID testing and COVID testing needs, it could be that rather than that being spent on pharmacy, it's being spent on lab. And usually the county is pretty flexible about that, despite what it says um, on this budget and our initial agreements. They allow for that kind of flexibility anyways, if we determine hey, this is where this funding needs to be used this time. Um, Heather. Heather. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Oh, okay, I can't tell if you hear me or not. Um, anyway, um, I was wondering, um, uh, would it be odd to suggest uh, that uh, some money be set aside in the budget uh, to somehow um, give us a tool to measure efficiency or inefficiencies uh, as a as a contract is as a as a contract uh, dictates us to act? That way, we can find out whether or not um, there's some aspects that we can improve uh, over and above. Uh, what's required in the contract? Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more? I'm not sure that I'm. I'm well, what I what I what I was thinking about was that where if we were able to if we were able to generate more efficiencies in other places that may not we may not be running as efficiently as we could be, that any funds saved from those from the from from catching those inefficiencies and, and improving those, that any money saved, that, that, that would still be ours, and that it'd be very clear uh, to the county that that money stays with us and, and that we have the flexibility of spending that, that money as well as we see fit. Well, I feel like the, the example I gave with the lab and pharmacy kind of does that, right? Um, and then the county does allow for, for that. If, if it's determined that uh, we put in the budget a $10,000 pharmacy line, but as it turns out, patients didn't need that much pharmacy this year, but what they actually needed this year was COVID testing, and so there was a significant impact on our lab that we would be able to move those funds to the appropriate place, and that, and that they really do allow for that. The county is super flexible in that way. That, okay. that um, and, and these are very small amounts, right? So 
you know, suggesting $5,000 for training and let's say that the, the, con the conference next year really does, does go off and we get to send someone there, it's possible it will cost more than that. That would be okay and we'd likely move something from our mobile IT, right? Like we can make those minor adjustments and it's not that big of a deal. Um, I would say that if there's something really specifically, you know, it might be even that lab is a thing that we're identifying specifically, hey, we really do need to set aside some money for lab and to call that out. We're project projecting that based on what's happened this year and what's likely to happen last year. We okay. want to make sure certain kind of testing available for patients and we want to build that out. Then I would say that we're moving this same dollar amount, the, the, the bottom line dollar amount, and working within that. So adjusting the pharmacy, making that, you know, 5,000, making a lab line and saying we need to look out for that. Okay. You'll see, for example, things like transportation aren't included in there, um, partially because our system takes care of transportation so well. So there are a lot of things that Alameda Health System as a system are providing for our patients as well. And this is where we found where well, we no longer have to have those those things in there. We used to have a transportation line where, where we would um, use money specifically for bus passes, for example, for patients. And, and we no longer need that because we now have a system by which we can have patients take lifts and get where they need to go, which is better for the patients, but it doesn't impact our cost center directly. Um, it, it, it impacts the system, but not this specific cost center. So that's an example. Um, uh, one other quick question. This is Mark again. Um, when do we enter into a new contract exactly? This is always on a calendar year. And so um, each year on January 1st, we're under a new subrecipient agreement. Oh, okay. January 1st. Okay. Yeah. So usually we would bring it, um, you know, and this is new because it's new to have a cab and, it's, and the commission is still, we're still growing. Um, so I would say our intent is to have you approve the subrecipient agreement in the December meeting. That's our oh, intent. I, oh, okay. Last year you approved it in the January meeting, so we were pretty close. And I want to say years prior to that when there was no cab, sometimes it was approved at other times as well. But, but the intent is for starting January 1st, there's a new agreement in place, and we're getting that signed off on as close to that date as possible. Uh, okay. Sometimes there needs to be revisions and negotiations that can sometimes last. It was not your fault, David. <laughs> We've developed really good systems since then. That's all. So are there other principles? So I, I mentioned the principle of, you know, this, this supplemental funding and including something like that in the contract. I'd like to hear a little bit more from you guys about whether that's a principle you think that should be included. Um, I don't want this to be driven by me and Damon so much as, as, as really to carry forth your values as a board um, because this is really your authority. Your as much as, as much as possible, you're the ones who are, are, are in negotiations for this contract with the county um, with our guidance or, you know, to tell you how the program runs, but we really want to carry forth your ideas. Well, I, I'm, um, this is Mark again. I'm certainly um, up for ha uh, having such a provision because I think that I think it's really good for us to have that because uh, in the future, if we should have 
um, supplemental monies uh, that we have an opportunity to uh, to say how it's spent or how it should be directed? Thank you, Mark. And I guess I'm wondering if there's a way um, on how to we use. Um, I guess I'm concerned about not having a mechanism to identify like expanding needs, right? Um, and advocating for additional support in the future. Um, and so I'm wondering how that could be incorporated into something like this, even if it's not, you know, we're not getting that help this year, kind of how can we say, you know, if we're able to show this, this, and this, you know, like how do we, um, yeah, how, how do we advocate for the needs that we're seeing or how can we uh, advocate for like being able to track certain things that we feel like uh, we can have substantial kind of like examples of, you know, this is where we see the gaps, this is where we see the needs, and this is what we kind of help us support asking for things in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a place where I, can I, can I just mention RBA? Cause I think that's, that's, it ties to that. So currently the county uses a framework with us called results-based accountability, but they use part of a framework with us called results-based accountability um, in the measurement for monitoring. And they use, the, the framework has two parts. One is called population accountability, which is, as a community, something all of us take responsibility for. And then the other part of the framework is performance accountability, which is as an agency, you take responsibility for these results for the program that you're, that you're doing. And currently the RBA language that we use in our contract is only performance accountability language. And I've been asking that we actually fill out the framework because I think what we're missing is exactly what you're saying. We don't really have an ongoing reference in our day-to-day -day work at a time when so much is changing to what the needs assessment is. And so I think that RBA is actually a mechanism for us to do that. And um, I've asked the county if we could actually expand and use the population accountability framework to describe things that they're accountable to as well as we're accountable to, to focus on at a population level. I've been trying with the medical director reports really to help kind of give that broader sense. And I think if that's something that's important to you all it's good to know, and I think if you think that's a mechanism that might be helpful to say, hey, let's let's understand what we're tracking together and at a population level and what needs we're tracking to so we know what pro whether the programs we're doing are the right programs. Not just whether yeah. we're doing them right, but are these the right programs? Um, so I, I that's how I've been thinking about the principle that you just articulated there of being able to understand the needs and the gaps and, and how it might fit into this particular agreement. but. I'm really interested in, you know, any other thoughts any other CAD members have about that or that you have about that. This is Mark again. Um, I am totally wholeheartedly supportive of any way we can make that happen because I do think it's important. I do think it um, gives us a better over uh, a better overview in general uh, from fiscal year to fiscal year, what is going on with the program, whether or not the program should be changed, what programs are working or not working, why are they not working if they're not. Um, I think it would just help a lot if we had the other uh, part of the picture. 
at least we know, at least we have some semblance of a yardstick of which, uh, which we know we're being measured and we're able to look at, at least anecdotally, any information that might give us some more insight. Mm -hmm. well, I think right now we have fairly detailed insight around our own programs um, with, you know, a list of measures, but I think we have much less insight into how our program is combining with other programs to achieve results for the community. Yes, and I think it's important for us to be able to see it if we can. Of course, that's easier said than done. Uh, it's hard. Kind of, yeah, it's not. It's not easy. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. I mean, I, I raised the issue earlier in a uh, in a different way, but it's uh, it's the same thing, but in a different context. But yeah, it's it, it would also be difficult, but not necessarily impossible. It's something to consider. Is all I is all I is all I put forth. Is that it's certainly something we should. Uh, give uh, a lot of thought to it and consideration to. Thanks, Mark. I wanted to um, just, you know, so that you have a reference point um, in the packet is page 92 is where the RBA metrics are described as kind of where they're at right now. And so that's something that you would be able to review and look at. Um, and also in regards to Lucia's um, um, comments, I would say, in this area that's around um, page 57, um, there's some language uh, that describes, I would say, describes the spirit of collaboration here, the duties and responsibilities of Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And so this might be another area where, where um, we would be able to identify that that relationship and partnership, and 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 how how we do things together to meet common goals. Um, so this section, and even a little bit um, above, might be um, something that you could remove uh, review um, for ideas on on how you would want those principles to carry forward, or suggest how you might want them to carry forward. Um, there are a lot of things within the contract that are, I would say, pretty pretty legally required, um, especially in regards to the, the homeless health center and being in, health, in the health center program. And those are the, the, the 19 first requirements that are, that are spelled out in here pretty specifically around, you know, what we're doing, how we're measuring. Um, some of it is really specific here about the mobile health clinic services, but other things are more related to, um, I'm sorry, this is our performance goal. Here we go. Board authority, the data reporting systems, the budget, all of these things are kind of the requirements of FIRSA. So if you look through these first sections, those are those are probably not going to change um, because they're the FIRSA requirements and they're they're spelled out as, as well as we can to say that we will meet those FIRSA requirements. Um do you think that there's anything new that kind of having switched over to the new medical record system has given you kind of information about in terms of a program or in terms of a patient needs or the patient served um, that could kind of help us kind of support our 
question about the contract. Will it go out, like, what part of November, like late or mid or? Uh, this is Eric, by the way. Hi, Eric. Um, well, if it was going to be in time for the November board meeting, um, it would be it would be early November. Um, so it would be in, in a little bit less than a month that we would have to have that prepped for you so that we can get it to you for the November board meeting. Our November board meeting meeting happens on the 9th of November, I believe. Uh, 10. 10. 10. 10. Yeah. You're right. So we'll review it during that time and then make a decision by the December meeting? Correct. So um, I know that the way that it worked last year was um, since it was the first time it was in front of you, we really broke it down uh, pretty much in a lot of detail over several meetings. And we won't be doing that this time. We will have it and breaking it down just for the one meeting, which is November with an opportunity to discuss it. Um, you have at this point, I mean, you're welcome to review the 2020. I think it really is gonna inform what the 2021 will look like so you can get familiar with the general concepts again to feel comfortable with the 2021 when it comes. Um, we'll discuss it and then it'll come back so that you can give feedback. If you see it in um, November and you see that there is a, a problem, this would be that would be a great time to bring that up and and ask for more negotiation or ask for something to be included. Um, and then with the idea that in uh, December, it would come before you, you'd probably not have a whole lot of discussion. It would really be with the recommendation to approve because it would have included any points from your discussion at that point. But you discuss it again then. Um, gotcha. Uh, Karen, this is, I'm just me, Karen, <laughs> sorry. Uh, this is Mark. Go ahead, Mark. Um, yes, one other question, uh, kind of follow up to his sort of. Um, um, would we have an idea about uh, what, if any, of the recommendations that might have been made uh, by us? Uh, uh, would we have? Uh, would there be, an, uh, for instance, an itemization, uh, or, or yeah, an itemization or item list that basically spells out what exactly? Um, they did reject and why? Um, you know, I can, we can, uh, I think, I'm, I'm going to say I think so. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that that seems reasonable. I, I if, if there's something that we are strongly asking for them to do and they don't accept it, we would certainly want to come to you and explain that we asked for this. They didn't agree to it. Or I think even in that case, when they, they're going to be bringing a contract to us that they want, and we'll bring that to you. And if there's something that they've brought that you disagree with, we want to be able to tell them that as well. And they're going to be taking that back to their board also to say, you know, the board doesn't, doesn't like that part. Or if they disagree, they don't, they don't want that. They have indicated that they are not willing to approve the contract as is. Um, certainly um, what both of our organizations are striving to do from an administrative perspective is to bring a contract to you at a minimum that our organizations would agree on. We're not going to bring a contract to you that that Alameda Health System doesn't think that they would be able to act upon, um, and, and nor will Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program be doing that as well, right? They're not going to they're not going to suggest a contract that they would they wouldn't say yes to. Um, uh, okay. If we bring it to you, if you disagree, you this is where you would say, I, no, it, we, we disagree. 
Uh, we really, you know, let's say I'm going to give a for example, a what if scenario. Um, you know, uh, we've said, I'm sorry, we, we, we really need another $100,000. We can't function without it. Uh, we're not able to do this work without that money. So I'm going to make it money related because it's kind of easy to, to say yes or no to, right? Right. So we say, you know, you guys have identified that actually what you want to do is buy another um, mobile vehicle to do uh, uh, dental, uh, mobile dental. You're committed. Our organization said, yeah, if you get an extra hundred thousand dollars from from the county, you could you could put a mobile dental in place. We've got the staff; we're ready to go. And we bring that to the county, and we say, yeah, we could do mobile dental if you give us a hundred thousand dollars. And they straight up are saying no. Then obviously we'd come back to you and say they said no; they're not giving an extra hundred thousand. We definitely cannot move forward on the mobile dental idea that that came up. That even even though we were able to do it with the additional funding, we we just can't do it, right? So I hope that illustrates a little bit about this idea of if one of the agencies says just point blank no to something, you know, we won't be bringing that, that, that version of the contract to you. And, yes, we would explain it. You make a suggestion to include something, we have to come back and explain why it's not there. Uh, okay. Heather, I think the important point is that it'll be at that level I think it's unlikely that we're going to get into, you know, nitty-gritty, like, wordsmithing, sort of. We asked for this word, and they declined this word. It's more, it's going to be more about, you know, sort of big-picture big ideas like that, and I think we'll, we'll you know, give, give feedback along all sides in, in, at, that, at that level. Um, yeah, I... I mean, in general, I think they're really emphasizing, especially after this year, emphasizing the the collaborative partnership component. Um, but it's not, you know, we're just not something off to the side here that, you know, they pass the agreement and then we're done. It's a, the county continues to think of it as, as part of their work or addressing homelessness, but it's not, you know, we're not forgotten in the future. Um, when, even if it's not financial, like when issues come up, like we're at the table um, in those conversations. Thank you. Any final question? Comments for this section. Okay. Well, thank you, Heather, for that. Um, so I'm going to move on to our next item. Um, do you have any public comments? Um, this is your moment to speak up. Okay, and then do we have any co-applicant board members? Any comments? Okay, great. Uh, I'll just say one quick thing, Lucia. Uh, when um, Damien was talking about Del Vecchio's um, letter to the Board of Trustees, 
we have a copy of that already. It's in our um, AHS mail. So all the board members, we all have our own accounts. So all his topics, and he went day by day by day and updated us on what was going on. So check your mail. <laughs> oh, and well, uh, this is Mark. Um, I, I thought I'd, maybe I maybe I didn't mention this uh, in the last meeting, but there is some issue that I I would like to bring up to be on the next agenda, if that's possible, uh, for discussion for the whole board. Uh, it is not something that's going to be realized um, in COVID. It's just not. Uh, I don't think. But. Uh, I wanted to make the suggestion that members of our board or uh, the board as a whole have the opportunity, if possible, to meet members of the board of trustees. Uh, since we give them recommendations, I think it would be great for people to know who the board of trustees is. I met a couple of them. But I don't think most of the board members have met most of the trustees or any of the trustees. And I think it's important for us to, at some point, um, it, it's something we don't have to do tomorrow or next year, but it's something that we ought to consider. That's all. Are you there? Thank you, Mark. That's definitely, yeah, that's, that's, Xander, Heather, and I have been talking about um, trying to connect the board of trust, the, the this co-applicant board to the board of trustees potentially through one of the committee mechanisms with you know um, some some regularity um, and so we're we're working out how to how to do that amidst the other things that we have on the agenda. So I appreciate um, you bringing it up and also acknowledging that it may take us some time to kind of work through what the what the best ways are to handle that in, in the midst of everything on uh, everyone's plate. Yeah, so like I said, I don't expect this to happen tomorrow or anything, um, given that the likelihood of, of achieving this or or whatever we come up with is going to have is going to have uh, have the involvement of people talking to one another, hopefully seeing one another for the first time in a long time, and so like and given the fact we have COVID now. Uh, yes, I don't think this is going to something that's going to happen overnight. But it, but I wanted to put it on the plate uh, and make uh, and make aware that that's one of my desires, and I'd like it to be uh, considered by uh, the rest of the body. I did. Uh, maybe it's worth saying. Actually, I did present at the last board of trustees meeting, and they were excited about that prospect as well. Oh, they, oh, you did. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm getting forgetful of my old age. <laughs> no, I don't think I, I don't think I shared that I did. So. Uh, oh, 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 okay, okay. I didn't think you did. Yeah. I wasn't. I, yeah. I was. I don't think I did hear it. So. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, this is Heather. I'm also noting, and here I'm, I'm notating for those who have a screen in front of them that um, in the minutes from the last meeting, also Mark, um, you'll see that we do have on record your suggestion to have a discussion to identify opportunities to build cab relationships with the AHS Board of Trustees. So okay. it, is, it is part of the record. Um, and so as Damon was mentioning, um, you know, the, yeah, we're figuring out that how, um, and, and you should also in the next month's meeting, you'll see a note of that also um, here in this uh, board member comment. 
so that you can remember which comments were made and to know that they are, are, on, are on our radar. Okay. Okay. Uh, any another any other comments? Okay, folks. I think we're going to call the meeting. Um, so we're adjourning the meeting at seven fifty-nine. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Next month, November. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Yeah. Have a good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.